An update on case law involving vulnerable road users, part two. This is Wheel Life. Legal reflections on vulnerable road users. The podcast where two experienced lawyers, who also happen to be enthusiastic cyclists, chat their way through topics concerning cyclists and other vulnerable road users from a legal and insurance perspective. I'm Emily Formby of 39 Essex Chambers. And I'm Caroline Hall of DAC Beechcross. And in this episode, we're going to conclude our review of updated case law. So how are you, Caroline? I'm not too bad at all today. How about yourself? Oh, very well, thank you. Feeling a little bit colder as the weather gets a bit parkier, but other, otherwise, it's a fine and chirpy day. I've got a good cup of coffee and uh, I had a lovely cycle in from the station and I'm good to go. Yeah, and I'm planning on getting back to uh, spin class tonight after two and a half weeks off because of a cold. I'm going to go and get on my spin bike again. Good for you. Gosh, the colds have been terrible this year. If it wasn't COVID, it's cold. Honestly, keeping well is a bit of a struggle, isn't it? Yeah, but getting out on the bike in all weathers tends to help. Always the way, always the way. Right, so today we're going to have another look at the updated case law and we're going to be looking at motorcycles and pedestrians, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, we are. So starting off with the motorcycle case, which is YYY and another um, and ZZZ. And it's a case from this year and it's a contribution claim and it's following the claimant who was a car driver settlement of a personal injury claim, which is brought by another individual. The the contribution claim arose out of a road traffic accident in which the defendant's motorcycle um, had collided with the claimant's vehicle. The claimant um, had sought to do a U-turn on a two-lane motorway, on a two-lane highway Um XXX, who was the passen- was the claim that had been settled um, by the claimant's uh, insurance company, had been a, pa- a pillion passenger on the back of the defendant's bike, and they'd sustained serious injuries. The court held that the claimants had not established that the standard of the defendant's riding had fallen below that of a reasonable standard, even bearing in mind that he'd been carrying a pillion passenger at the time. The court held that no blame was to attach to the defendant, ruling that the standard that the claimants asserted, namely a counsel of perfection, was too high and that according to the authorities, that was not the test. So what had happened, the accident circumstances, is that the claimant who was in a car had driven off a roundabout and the intention was that she was going to use a lay-by to her left. She was going to pull in, use that lay-by to swing and undertake a U-turn. So she ended up on the opposite side of the road in the lay-by that was on the other side of the road because she was exchanging daughters with her ex-husband. They were having a, a handover of care. So she pulled in, well, she alleges that she pulled in, indicated that she was going to pull in and then swung across the road. The motorcyclist who was driving behind her at the time saw her pull into the lay-by on the left, thought, that looks a bit strange. Maybe I need to pull into the middle of the road slightly because he anticipated that that car had pulled over and that the driver's door may open. And if he was riding too close to the side of the road, he might be knocked over by that car door opening. So, opted to pull slightly over to the look in his mirrors to check that the motorcycle that was following him at the time um, wasn't too close to him for him to undertake the manoeuvre, pulled over slightly to the right. As he was undertaking this, um, the claimant who'd pulled in started the U-turn manoeuvre and collided with the motorbike. I think what's interesting about this is it 
is a good example of that kind of causative potency suggestion, um, which uh, we've seen before. If you're doing something that is inherently a risky manoeuvre, and I think we can all agree pulling a U-turn on a two-lane uh, motorway is a, is a, is a risky manoeuvre on a two-lane um, highway is a risky manoeuvre. So the burden on the claimant of being absolutely certain, sure that what she was doing uh, was safe before she started doing it is going to be very, very high. Um, and the defendant motorcyclist had taken sensible decisions based on a reasonable assumption of what was happening. So generally, if someone pulls over into a lay-by, what's much likely to happen is they're going to pull over, stop and get out. So considering that a car door might open in your face and moving yourself on the road position accordingly is exactly the kind of sensible manoeuvre you may have. Um, I mean, I guess it would often be a common, it may be that if he was on a two-lane motorway, there could be a suggestion of going too fast. I'm not saying it was in this case, but that kind of thing would often come into play but inherently it's the risky maneuver of the u the u-turn on the motorway or on the two-lane highway that's setting up the dangerous circumstances in the first place and therefore that causative potency that blameworthiness is going to be very strongly on the part of the claimant yeah and what what kind of confuses my head when i'm looking at the accident circumstances on this one is you're used to looking to see what the claimant um, what the defendant did wrong um, and the claimant being the, the the unblameworthy party as such but this is a contribution claim and the the claimant undertaking this u-turn wasn't turning around and going i'm completely blameless here um, they acknowledged that what they did wasn't sensible they were looking for a contribution from the motorcyclist but they were having to trying to establish that his uh, riding fell below the standard of a reasonable motorcyclist. And going back to what Emily was just saying there, what he did seems eminently sensible. Um, he checked his mirrors to make sure he wasn't going to cause any issues to the rider behind him. And he, he pulled over slightly. He wasn't to know that this um, drive was going to swing in front of him. As a result, had he done anything negligent, should he have gone slower? And one of the allegations was that with a pillion passenger on, he should have been going slower. I think it, I think that that's the way to look at it, is to say, what did the motorcyclists do wrong? What did they do in their riding that made them to blame, albeit only partly, for this accident? And having a pillion passenger per se is obviously not negligent. Um, and it might mean that, that you have to adapt your riding style. Uh, but the circumstances here were such that the claimant couldn't prove that there was fault um, on the part of the defendant um, and therefore uh, what they were seeking was was more than a reasonable standard. It was a council of perfection, uh, which not being the test meant that the claim for contribution failed. Yeah, and it's it's going back to um, the, the, the case that's quoted in relation to the council of perfection is the case of Anno and South East London. Have I pronounced that correctly? You probably may have come across it. I thought it was a Hananu, but... A Hanu. Um, and but South um, East London and Kent Bus Company. And the, the quote from that case, which um, you see quoted quite a lot in um, these cases, is there is sometimes a danger in cases of negligence that the court may evaluate the standard of care owed by the defendant by reference to fine considerations elicited in the leisure of the courtroom, perhaps with the liberal use of hindsight. The obligation thus constructed can look more like a guarantee of the claimant's safety than a duty to take reasonable care. And in this case, as we've just said, 
there was no contribution found from the motorcyclist yeah. riding. I think, he um, was found to have done uh, you know, everything we can, he should have done. We can set that off when you're looking at what you expect somebody to do uh, with the idea of there being more leeway, for example, um, in somebody who is taking action in the heat of the moment to avoid an accident. So if, for example, um, a car door was suddenly opened in the path of this motorcyclist and they swerved and that then triggered an accident, uh, the court would take into account the circumstances of that um, and the fact that they were um, trying to respond to an unfolding emergency. Um, so you can really look at the facts and look at the circumstances, but beware of imposing a very mechanistic scrutiny. And again, that often comes into play when you get reconstruction experts looking at sight lines and measuring you know six meters and two meters and half a meter um and therefore the, the extrapolating the speed must have been x y and z uh, when it's important to remember all of these are reconstructed assumptions on accounts that were given in the heat of the moment and often in the upset following a major accident and therefore there has to be a more evaluative assessment overall so we've got a couple of uh, well a few children and pedestrian cases to uh, finish our roundup of case law. Uh, and um, the first of those was um, Chan and Peters. Yeah. Um, and when we say children, the uh, claimant involved was 17 at the time. So um, it's just scraping what you would classify as a child pedestrian, really. But um, it is a, a case from this summer uh, involving a child pedestrian coming out from behind a bus, um, which as we all know as drivers, but also as uh, solicitors who deal with these cases regularly, if there's a bus and children around, you should generally slow down because you never know what's going to come out from behind it. Um, however, in this case, um, it was found that the defendant had done nothing wrong. Do you want to take us through the facts, Emily? Yeah, of course. So this is Chan and Peters and Advantage Insurance. Um, and the claimant, who's Caroline says was 17 at the time of the accident, um, was a pedestrian um, and uh, was struck by the defendant. The accident happened outside school. Um, it was good visibility um, and it was around lunchtime. So so there was um, no, no, no question of it getting, getting dark at all. And it wasn't raining. It was a fine day. Uh, there was a steady stream of traffic um, um, with the traffic flowing freely um, up and down the road so quite busy but no congestion um, so there was a the, the sort of layout of the road was there was a parking bay on the same side of the road as the school um, and as the defendant approached um, the uh, school and the accident location uh, the parking bay was on 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 the near side on the left hand side at the time of the accident, there were two vehicles in that parking bay. One was a double-decker bus and the other was a car. So at the moment of the accident, the bus was ahead of the car. Um, and there's some sort of slightly patchy CCTV footage of what happened. Um, but evidence given to the court by a number of witnesses, parties, witnesses, um, people that were there at the time and experts, um, as a result of which the judge made a number of findings of fact. So the claimant, these are the facts that were, that were found, obviously not everything agreed by everyone, but this becomes the judgment of uh, what actually happened. So after coming up the pathway from the school, the claimant saw his friends and they waved at each other. And the friends on the other side of the road, the claimant decides he's going to cross the road to see them. Um, some 20 seconds or so before the collision, uh, the claimant set off from the pavement into the parking bay, so not into the actual road itself, but into the parking bay between the bus and the car. 
He remained in the parking bay behind the car from the defendant's point of view for about 20 seconds or so until half a second before the collision when he started to jog into the road. Uh, He didn't, unfortunately, look right, look to his right, ergo look into the direction of the car, the defendant's car, look to where the car's coming towards him before he set off into the road and he didn't see the defendant's car. Uh, so he didn't look right, didn't see the car, which was travelling at about 25 miles an hour at the time that it hit him. Um, so the speed limit at that time was 30. So there was no suggestion of speed in absolute terms at the time of the collision. Um, the defendant wasn't covering the brake pedal in the moments leading up to the accident and wasn't slowing down. So the defendant was just driving at a steady pace along the road. Um, however, the defendant was keeping pretty close to the white lines in the middle of the carriageway. So centering themselves towards the middle of the carriageway to give the parked car and the bus and essentially the lay-by uh, as wide a berth as possible. Now, from the point at which the defendant rounded the curve in the road, so the point at which the defendant came into sight towards the school, uh, until the moment of the collision, um, they couldn't see the claimant because the claimant was standing in the parking bay. And because the bus was to the claimant's right, the bus was essentially obscuring the claimant from the defendant's view. And the claimant wasn't so far forward in the parking bay uh, that he could be seen in front of the car. Um, So given the sitting position of the defendant in the driving seat and also measuring the claimant's height and the height of the car, there was only a very few centimetres at most of which the claimant would be seen above the car. And that would have reduced to almost nothing by the time at which the defendant was about 50 metres from the locus. And the the claimant wasn't particularly conspicuous either. So the defendant didn't see the claimant until he moved out into the road uh, and beyond, essentially beyond the shelter of the car. And that was only about 0.6 of a second before the collision. Um, The collision led to the claimant's front leg, leading leg, hitting the front near side to the front left of the defendant's car next to the front wheel arch and the front corner of the vehicle. And the force of the contact and the momentum unfortunately led the claimant to collide with the bonnet and the front windscreen of the car before being propelled along the road um, and came to rest at the back of the bus. The defendant slammed on his brakes as soon as uh, um, uh, as soon as she saw the claimant coming out, and she came to a halt. And the defendant's response time was about a second. So, for all of those reasons, that's the factual nexus. The, the, the judge decided the defendant wasn't negligent, um, and and these are the reasons. Firstly, that the defendant didn't fail to look and take account of her surroundings uh, in the manner of which she would be expected of a reasonably competent driver. So effectively found that the defendant was driving in the manner to be expected of a reasonably competent driver Uh, and and rejected the suggestion uh, that by failing to spot the claimant, uh, the defendant was negligent um, and um, by failing to take... um, Uh, precautionary measures until the claimant emerged from the safe protection of the car uh, she had been uh, driving negligently Um, and that effectively therefore the defendant acted in the manner of a reasonably confident competent driver in the way that she reacted particularly in the way she reacted once she saw the claimant jogging into the road uh, which was that she uh, had a response time of one second to stopping so for all those reasons no uh, reasonably competent driver wouldn't stop in time Uh, uh, and therefore uh, uh, avoided the accident entirely.
Yeah, it's it. It's one of those ones. As I said, it's when um, it's like an exam question. You've got a school, you've got a bus, you've got you've come around the corner. There's people, there's children walking around the sides of the road. What as a driver should you do? Mm. Um, and yeah, she was under the speed limit. She that she didn't know there was anybody behind that bus, um, and it wasn't found that she should have acted beforehand just in case somebody stepped out yeah and and effectively by not slowing down or covering the brakes the suggestion being that you should be you know driving much more slowly on the off chance that wasn't held to be the standard that she was required to um comply with i mean what's interesting is if the claimant had been younger um then um the you know whether there'd have been a different outcome uh and the certain (laughs) so well i mean i think it's interesting because of course uh, 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 there's a there's a suggestion here and and there's definitely a comment that the the claimant didn't look to his right before running out into the road um and and would be expected to and would be expected to know uh that that was something that should be done and indeed the the very fact that the claimant had been standing between in the lay-by between the vehicles before coming out suggested there was an element of uh waiting and watching for it to be safe it wasn't you know a little kid running straight from a park you know straight across a road um but i mean i think you'd have to evaluate it again in all the circumstances um but i think that might make it more finely balanced to be honest yeah um and a smaller child even if it wasn't a bus it was a smaller child coming out from behind a parked car again would they have possibly been able to see be seen you looking at the sight lines from the driver and what you can actually see when you're sat in a car versus if you were walking upright and being able to see um see over the tops of cars so yeah there's going back to what we said right at the beginning of the first um uh case law podcast it's all of these cases turn on the facts and um if he hadn't been 17 if he'd been younger it might have been a different outcome yeah i mean what's interesting is despite being 17 and therefore at the taller end of children so to speak um it was it was held as a matter of fact that that the claimant was only just visible that was only a few centimeters visible so i guess another thing would be if you had um a 17 but very tall claimant <laughs> and therefore was much more visible and was much more readily apparent whether there would be um uh, a greater suggestion of potential blame on the part of the defendant uh, because they should have seen that there was somebody there waiting to cross the road and, and perhaps should have anticipated that might have happened but as it was um this was held to be uh the actions of a reasonably competent driver and so no blame attached yeah well the next case which is another case involving um a claimant walking across the road and getting hit by a car it, it's more of an example of getting your evidence straight at the time versus <laughs> and how evidence and witnesses change across the years not necessarily deliberately but memories change um, and that case is barrow and others and merit and another and it's a 2021 case and in that one the claimant, who was aged 11 at the time of the accident, set off walking with a friend, but after crossing the road outside of his house, he went back home to get his rugby boots whilst his friend waited on the other side of the road for him. As the claimant returned, the defendant was driving along the road and he collided um, and they collided with the claimant. The claimant stated that he had slipped backwards in the middle of the carriageway when crossing and was getting to his feet when he was hit, arguing that his position was obvious and that a reasonable bri- driver would have had time to avoid a collision, i.e. I was in the middle of the road, why didn't you see me? Slightly different to the case we've just looked at. The defendant's case was that actually the claimant was running, not walking, and that the accident was unavoidable as the claimant had run into the road when her vision was obscured by oncoming traffic. On the morning of the accident, um, the friend who, this is the friend who was waiting on the side of the road for his 
uh, the claimant to come back with his rugby boots, told the police that the claimant had run across the road, slipped and was hit by the car. And as he was getting to his feet, um, uh, sorry, and was hit by the car, he was getting to his feet, which took several seconds. He later stated that the claimant was walking across the road when he slipped and was getting up when he was hit by the defendant's vehicle. So slight changing the evidence there. So three years later, in his witness statements, in his, when he, his witness statements were formalised by solicitors, um, the friend said that the claimant had been walking but had fallen backwards, not forwards. Um, and an independent witness said that the claimant had run out into the path of the defendant's vehicle. Accident reconstruction evidence was obtained, but it was inconclusive. So the court said that in the claims involving fast-moving and traumatic events such as this, it was not always possible to come to a decision as to precisely what had happened. And in such cases, the court's task was was to come to a reasoned view on the most probable explanation. Um, This is a case where there wasn't CCTV, there wasn't dash cam, and the few eyewitnesses had observed events from different positions. There was little physical evidence, such as extensive damage, and which would aid reconstruction. So it was really coming down to what was said at the time so the judge basically came back to the conclusion that accounts given at the time of the event are usually more accurate than those provided later and even honest witnesses might give wholly inaccurate evidence because their memory might have been degraded not just by time but a range of biases in a wholly unconscious manner The court therefore stated that a cautious approach should be taken to evidence given in the witness box at trial or in statements generated for the purpose of litigation in relation to events that had taken place many years before, particularly where the events were highly traumatic and had only lasted for a few seconds. So the closer the evidence was to the time of the incident, the more accurate it was likely to be. So... On that basis, the court held that taking into account the lay witness evidence, the most probable scenario of what actually happened was that the claimant had run back across the road towards his friend into the path of the oncoming traffic just after a vehicle had passed him from his left and obscured him from the defendant's view. He probably slipped and fell in the road in front of the defendant's vehicle and the defendant had no reason realistic opportunity of avoiding the collision. So the claim was dismissed. So it's really coming back to what the court can, what evidence they use to come to the reasoned view of what the most probable explanation was. Um, and generally, they look at what was said to the police at the time or what was said perhaps to investigators that were sent out to insurers within, sorry, by insurers within the first couple of weeks of the accident. Um, a, a lot of the time um, with solicitors, they may not get the case for two, three years and memories change. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about this is saying, well, if something had happened, like if if they'd walked across the road or run or fallen in the way that was described, then it's unlikely that the defendant wouldn't have seen them. And, you know, the, the first version of events given, you know, is more likely to be reliable. Uh, and the witness then is more likely to remember what happened uh, rather than not deliberately giving a false account, but just uh, afterwards you go over it or you've spoken to other people or you reflect on it. Um, I mean, there used to be that really good, you know, that test about talking to people on the tube, on a tube, carriage and you um, witness an incident and then you tell everyone in the tube carriage and by the time the sort of Chinese whispers get to the last person it's a completely mangled account just you know explaining it one bit after another because everybody slightly references and changes what they remember. But I think I've also had one um, a case a number of years ago involving a cyclist in London Um, we were um, a big HGV um, driving through central London we were in um, outside lane of two inside lane there was a bus lane um well bus stops but the bus had to then pull into the lane of traffic and there was a cyclist coming up and 
the bus was pulling into the lane of traffic um, and there was a gap between, very narrow gap between the lorry and the bus. And the cyclist decided from behind that there was enough room for the cyclist to go through. As he was going through the gap, something happened that caused him to come off his bike and go under the wheel of our HGV. Our HGV driver was absolutely adamant throughout that he did not uh, deviate from his line. He drove a straight line. Um, There was nothing that he could have done for a cyclist coming up from behind that would have caused the accident. He was in a straight line. It must have been something else. As the big um, HGV driver with causative potency, everyone was immediately looking at us for being the party that caused the accident. Um, It was a nasty accident. The claimant lost his leg. There was there was. Um, the bus that was us trying to figure out what happened and you had differing versions of events from the different witnesses from the claimant there was an A&E doctor who was cycling to work behind the claimant who helped with um, mm. treatment afterwards there was her version there's all of these different versions and then we ultimately managed to find some CCTV that had been corrupted that we got um that was um, saved by some computer experts and it showed actually our driver had driven in a straight line. He hadn't veered, he hadn't moved out the way. And what had happened was that there seemed to be a defect in the road. And as the, the bus pulled out and went over it, um, the claimant going through had been knocked off course slightly. And that's what had caused the incident. Our driver had stuck to his guns and was driving in a straight line, but it was the CCTV in that instance that, was completely at odds with some of the eyewitnesses. Yeah, I think um, eyewitnesses are, it, I mean, it's very difficult. It, it, it is what we rely on, but it is very, very difficult to be accurate. And it's amazing how often you'll have a CCTV or a dash cam or some sort of reconstruction and it just can't be what they remember seeing or a l- traffic lights will be in a slightly different location or the pedestrian crossing is on the other side of the road or all sorts of things. It is interesting. Um, but of course, the sooner you give an account, um, the more likely it is to be accurate and the more likely it is to be uncontaminated by other reflection or subsequent events. Um, and I yeah. think it's interesting as well, you know, we always have this thing of, um, and particularly in the world of fundamental dishonesty, um, it's important to remember, as a judge rightly said, that um, there was no, there was nothing malign about the lack of recollection or the change of story. There was no attempt to mislead, that there was a genuine attempt to assist um, and there was no deliberate n- deliberate false evidence. It's just um, memory decays and, and, and recollection can alter. Yeah, yeah. Just moving on to one other case, and this isn't actually a final decision. This is just a preliminary issue um, hearing from this summer um, involving a minor. And this involved, it's um, A, a minor by her litigation friend, F.A. and Akram. And this one involves a nine-year-old pedestrian who was with a group of other people, including adults who were crossing the road. The defendant's vehicle approached the group, and while the other pedestrians slowed down, The claimant carried on and was struck by a vehicle when she was about two metres ahead of the others. A a preliminary issue um, was continued and determined by the court as to the extent to which, if at all, the claimant was guilty of contributory negligence. And we've just discussed previously how the younger the child is, it's much, much harder to argue that they've got any road sense or can be found to blame for the accident. Um, And it was found here, um, whilst it must be remembered that the issue of liability has not yet been considered or determined in this case, um, His Honour Judge Bird rejected the argument that there had been any. um, And he said that 
the court must gauge fault by reference to what can be reasonably expected of a child with with the age and characteristics of the claimant in the circumstances the claimant found herself, bearing in mind that her road sense and experience is not what would be expected of an older person. In undertaking that exercise, the court must take account of all circumstances of the case. I think that's, yeah, that sort of says it all really, doesn't it? <laughs> but um, but that, that exactly that balancing of fault and looking at what you can expect of a child. Um, and then I guess that finally brings us to the case of Gullah McDonough, which we looked at in our series one uh, case update. Um, that was a pedestrian child of 13 uh, in which the judge said you know obviously at 13 you're mediating between an 18 year old and an 8 year old you know you're going to have some road sense but not perfect Um, but we talked about that before the important thing to note in that one there was a 10% liability for failing to look at the speeding culpable car of the uh, as the baddies drove away from the police who were trying to nab them for um, light fingeredly selling off apple goods Um, but the claimant innocent claimant was 10% um, liable because the, he hadn't sort of looked properly as he crossed the road and, and was thought he was probably wearing headphones. Anyway, without going back through all of that, the thing to note is that there's an appeal outstanding on that one. So if we hear more, uh, we will let you know. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, the outcome of that one. Um, and when we do hear it, we can potentially go into what uh, the courts look at in terms of appeal because um, going back to the earlier case um, in the previous podcast where we were discussing the bike and that case has gone back to trial um, appeals can send cases back to be completely reheard or they can just find that the court um, was perfectly entitled on the facts that they had to to give the split in the judgment that they did so it'll be interesting to see um, when this one comes out what the, um, the court of appeal decides. I mean, and just that on appeals, I mean, although it's only at the county court level, the the case we started off with in our our first episode of Price in Oxfordshire, um, that was remitted back for a second trial because... Uh, the appellate judge, the, the circuit judge, found that as a result of the decision she'd made about applying the law, uh, you had to completely look at it again and hear all the witnesses again and hear all of the facts and then apply the framework of law. She she wasn't able to substitute her own answer uh, on, on the basis of the evidence because you'd evaluate it in a different way. So, um, yeah, that's that's something to think about when you're looking at appeals. But a final case is a highway case. We know we love a highway case. Um, the Silver and Transport for London. Do you want to take it away for us, Caroline? End this yeah, on a this high is, note. <laughs> this is just <laughs> a very this is just a very quick one, and it's it's not reported um, very far and wide, but it's really just to um, flag up. This is dealing with a worn and a polished manhole cover. So, um, in a claim for damages for personal injury, the court found that surface of a manhole cover on a busy London road, which had become worn and polished, had represented a real danger to riders of motor scooters, and that the Highway Authority had breached its duty under the highways act to maintain the highway so this isn't just a a dip in the road or um, something that a bike or an e-scooter wheel is going to go into this is a very worn um, almost glassy manhole cover i think that's really interesting actually because uh, when you're looking at your duty to maintain um, in general the wearing of the, the, the the wearing of the road is not in and of itself um, a hazard. You know, you expect the you expect the road to have um, imperfections, and it's only when you get to a, 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 an actual danger, uh, a change in the manifestation of the surface, that, that, that the claim is triggered. But here, uh, uh, it's become a danger by by virtue of it being worn, uh, and that is that's yeah, that's a that's an interesting case. 
I mean, whether it would extend, as you know, there are certain kinds of road surface that become um, uh, more hazardous, uh, uh, light wells over cellars, the glass um, over cellars, for example, or tiling on pavements and, and so on and so forth, often off the curtilage of the highway, uh, but are things that can um, also cause slipping accidents. So that's, that's an interesting one. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. But we can do a highways episode potentially with um, new duties and uh, the way claims are starting to be looked at slightly differently um, later in the series. Oh, that sounds like a promise or a threat. I'm not sure which, but absolutely. I think we've done our deed for today, but uh, we'll certainly uh, we'll certainly have an episode on that later on uh, in this podcast series. So great as always to chat to you, Caroline. Have a great rest of week and look forward to uh, our, our cycle paths crossing again soon. thanks Emily speak to you later okay bye Bye. thanks for listening Wheel Life is brought to you by international law firm DAC Beechcraft and Barrister's Chambers 39 Essex Chambers discover more articles podcasts and webinars over at dacbeechcraft.com and 39essex.com